This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. How does our brain control our behaviour? PhD graduate in brain science, Julia Arditi, shares some of her recent findings in the following presentation recorded at the Canterbury Workers' Education Association. Thank you for coming. Um, I'm from Israel, as you can hear in my accent. I'm here for four years, loving New Zealand, but my English is not perfect yet, so... (laughs) Thank you. So, yeah... Well, I might have, uh, you know, mistakes in my pronunciations and that we won't worry about it, right? We'll just start. Okay. So we are going to talk about our brain and us. Why did I call the, the presentation that way, our brain and us? Because it's important to differentiate these two things. Our brain is, is a product of Mother Nature. And Mother Nature has certain motivations. We'll speak more about it. I am, as a person, like what I call us or I, I might have motivations that are a bit different from those of Mother Nature. Like Mother Nature, what's important for her, Mother like our brain was evolved through evolution. Mother Nature, what's important for her is that we'll survive and we'll reproduce. But me as a person, I may have a bit of different motivations and we have also to remember that we don't, don't, maybe in the past we lived in the forest and it was the important thing was to know how to flee and how to fight. But now we live in the city. And what's important to me is actually well, my well-being. I want to be happy and capable as much as I can for as long as I can. And I need my brain healthy for that. So let's see why I'm interested in the brain is because of that is because the brain is very important for our our happiness and well-being. If we know about the brain and the nervous system, we know how to maintain our brain, how to improve it. And in the extreme cases, when things go really wrong, we might know how to fix it. So I think in our society, like, Neuroscientists know a lot about the brain, but people usually know much more about other organs, like the heart, and much less about the brain. We don't see the brain. It's inside uh, our skull. It's like a black box. We don't know what happens there. And more than that, we don't feel anything in our brain. We do feel things in our other parts of our body, like if my heart aches sometimes, when something is very uh, painful emotionally, I can actually feel pain in my heart. 
but in my brain, I don't feel anything. However, the brain is the one that caused the pain in my heart, and we'll see how it happens. So our brain was evolved through evolution. It wasn't created in one day. And this, what I said before about Mother Nature, when something evolves through evolution, it keeps the mechanisms that helped organisms survived. So millions of years ago, there were organisms that were much simpler than us. We can still see around us um, organisms that are much simpler than us, like cats and dogs and mice and rats. But only, only those who survived passed on their mechanisms to the to the next generation. Those who died, those who had mechanisms that are not useful for survival, did not pass their mechanisms. So this is how comes that our brain is a very useful survival machine. This is why uh, our brain is very good in survival, but its main, its main purpose is not to keep us happy. If we want to keep ourselves happy, we have to work on our brain to strengthen it in the parts that are important for us being happy and capable and that. So this is a Russian babushka doll. I hope you know it, how it works. The small, the small dolls, can get into the big one. And then we see only the big one from the outside, but it contains inside all the small ones. And why do I say that? Because that's what happened in evolution. Like simpler mechanisms of survival were kept. We have a very advanced brain but it's only the outer layer of it that is very advanced. Inside, we still have the simple, sim simpler mechanisms that we inherited from the organisms that were much more sim simple. So let's see exactly our, how our brain is made and what parts will we be talking about. This is a model of the brain made of foam. Outside, we see the cortex. The cortex is the most advanced layer of the brain. The, it's called sometimes neocortex because it's new in evolutionary terms. This is the most advanced uh, part and it's only when input from the environment or from the body gets to our cortex, then we'll become aware of it. If it did not reach our cortex, it may affect our behavior, but we won't be aware of it. Also, the cortex have the flexibility of like thinking about things and inhibiting the impulse. If we have an impulse of running away or, or fighting, these are impulses. These are things that 
like cats and dogs also do, but they have less uh, options of inhibition and regulation than us because we have more cortex, and we'll see it in a minute. Uh, so the cortex is responsible for awareness and regulation of behavior. There are, we'll speak about the cortex, but there are two parts of the, of the brain we that we won't speak about, but I want you to know about just for orientation. So the, this is the brainstem. It connects the spinal cord with the brain, and it's responsible mainly for basic functions, like respiration and digestion, things we are not necessarily aware of and, not, and don't con do not control. So these are simple functions, and we won't speak about them. At the back of the brain, there is the cerebellum. Cerebellum, this is the, this uh, small, like small ball in the back of the brain. It, it's responsible for mainly for movement. We also won't speak about it, but it's important to know because it helps us to know, like, how do we see the picture? Now, as I said, you remember the babushka dolls? As I said, the cortex is the new, uh, new layer, but inside the brain, if I'll open it, inside, there, is the, there are the tat-cortical structures, here in blue, also in blue in the picture, the subcortical structures that are responsible, they are responsible for impulses and emotions. They do, we'll speak about them, they, they do initial processing of input from our, our body and the environment, and they give input to the body, but their input is stereotypical. We are speaking about automatic behavior. It's not very flexible. We'll see an example later. Flexibility, like um, thinking about options and how we should react, it comes from, from the cortex. So inside, sometimes here they drew it like the cortex is a bit transparent, and this is why you see the subcortical structures inside. Sometimes you see, you'll see the picture like that, like you see half of the brain, subcortical areas inside. Here I just want to stress the, the importance of the cerebral cortex. These are humans, and these are gorillas. The apes are close relatives of us, the humans. What's important here is humans has much more uh, neurons in their cortex than all others. The chimpanzees, the gorillas that are closest uh, relatives of us have approximately half of the neurons we have in our cortex. Like an elephant here, he has a quite big, big, like more than two kilos uh, grams, more than two kilos of cortex. We have only more than one kilo of cortex, but an elephant is very big. And anyway, if you count the, the number of neurons in his cortex, there are maybe third of our cortex. And you have to understand that to 
any function at all, at all that we have, if it's vision or hearing, like perception, or the ability to activate our body motorically, or the ability to think and weigh possibilities and make plans for the future, we need neurons for that. If we don't have the neurons, we can't do it, and we'll see it later. Another thing that uh, differentiates us humans from other species is the prefrontal cortex. Now, the, the, if we look at the brain, and now, yeah, it's like that. If we look at the brain, it has, the cortex has a front, front part and back part. The back part is responsible for receiving input from the environment. The front part is responsible for doing things. So the back part of the frontal cortex is for a motorical activation. However, however the frontal uh, pole of the cortex, of the frontal cortex, is for thinking, is for planning. It's what makes us humans um, much more sophisticated than, than other species because we, can, we are not limited to the uh, immediate environment. We can think abstractly, we can make plans for the future, we can have long-term goals, and we can sacrifice short-term satisfaction, satisfactions for these long-term goals. We can inhibit our impulses much more than any other species on Earth. So what are, where are the neurons that allow us to do that? They are in the prefrontal cortex. And the idea here is that humans have much more, like much more prefrontal cortex than other species. If you look at other species, if you look at a cat, for example, uh, compared to a dog, a cat has less frontal, prefrontal cortex than a dog. A cat is indeed less trainable, less, is less able to inhibit his impulses as compared to a dog. And us, we are the best in it. Um, another way to look at the prefrontal cortex, just that you understand its importance, is developmentally. So here we see the brain of a five years old, and then let's say 10 years old and 15 years old, and only in our early 20s, our prefrontal cortex matures. This is the, the, the last um, part of the cortex to mature. Just in that last part, as a parent, when you do parental modification of your children's behaviour, and say you have a child who had no parental modification, would they both end up the same at that last point? Yeah, physiologically, like if you look at their brain, they will probably, their brain will may look the same because this is too, too gentle behavioral thing to see on the brain. However, they, they will probably behave differently because as 
parents or people who are in contact with children and teenagers, it's important to know that their prefrontal cortex is not mature. They cannot control their impulses the way adults can. So the adult must, must modify the, their behavior and be their prefrontal cortex. Um, and it's even good to explain to them how you perceive it. Like when you, are, when, you have, when you are adult and you can plan for the future and you can explain to the child what are the consequences of his behavior. It's good to explain it because it trains the child or the teenager to think about, him, about it himself. So prefrontal cortex, very important. You'll hear about it more. Uh, but now, we have this event, probably very unpleasant event that happened to this woman. She was in the kitchen. I think this picture was taken in, in the 50s or, so, or something, because if it was today, it might not have been a, a woman. Uh, but yes, she was cooking and she touched the hot pot. Mm -hmm. And then what happened? What do you think happened? She threw it down. Why? Because it's hot. It burned her fingers, right? And she immediately threw it, yeah. it down. This is why we said drop it like it's hot. It means you dropped it very quickly. Now, our experience is what? In this example, I'm going to show you how an input goes into the nervous system and what happens in the different stages. And I want also to show you that our experience, our, what we are aware of, is not always what really happened in reality. So our experiences is that the pot was hot and I dropped it. But actually, what happens in reality is that I dropped it before I was aware that it was hot. Why? Because Mother Nature uh, equipped us with reflexes. We have a reflex, it's called reflex arc. We have a reflex for pain and heat. And we like withdrew very quickly from things like pain, pain and heat that can damage our tissues. Before I, I forgot, I need to introduce you. I'll come back in a minute to this, but this is the skeleton of this woman from the 50s. I got hold of it. And it has very convenient uh, features. Here in, uh, I, don't, I hope you see it, but we have a pink part here that is the cortex. And we have a blue part that is the subcortical areas. Apart from that, the skeletal have, has three kinds of neurons. There is the green one. The green one brings, brings input from the environment and the body to the brain. This is an income, uh, income input. And then we have red and blue, red and blue neurons. The red is 
an activating neuron. It will activate whatever it goes to. If it's a muscle, it will activate the muscle, so it will create movement. If it's another neuron, it will activate the other neuron. On the other hand, the blue is inhibiting, so it can inhibit the next neuron. Now, when you are familiar with the skeleton, we said it has a brain, it has a heart in there. Now we can go back to the story where we have receptors here uh, to hit. We touch the hot pot. The message goes in the neuron. Message of heat goes in the neuron. It goes to the spinal cord. Oh, maybe I'll put the, yeah, we have a reflex arc. Uh, it goes to the spinal cord. And from the spinal cord, there is a motor neuron that activates the muscle in the hand. So the muscle is activated by a pathway of only two neurons. It's called the reflex arc. It's very fast, it's involuntary, and it takes about 35,000, uh, like 35 milliseconds. So it's less than tenths of a second. Less than tenths of a second. It did not even reach our brain. If it doesn't reach our brain, of course we are not aware of it. So this is the thing, the first thing that happened. The second, so this happened, I dropped the, I dropped the pot. That's okay. My, my tissue here is still damaged, so I, still have the, this income neuron working, and then it continues from the spinal cord, it continues to the subcortical areas. Subcortical areas, and the subcortical areas can, can do few things. First, they can activate the whole body. They can give an ac activation to my heart, let's say, and respiration, so I start um, breathing faster. And they can, they have an inhibition. They can actually inhibit, they, they can send him inhibition to the junction, making, making the pain feel less, less painful. The subcortical areas, they can start regulating the pain. Now, why, why is that good for survival? Because if we want to, if we need to run away, we don't want to pay attention to the pain now. We don't want it to hinder us. So we'll kind of feel the pain later more. So this is the first inhibition of the pain that we have no access to. It happens without our voluntary will. And you know, it's a, a, a mechanism of mother nature. It, maybe it will happen, maybe not, depends on the circumstances. No, no access for us to do anything with it. After it goes to the subcortical areas, the message continues at last. It takes more than two seconds, two tenths of a second, of a second. It, 
after more than two tenths of a second, the message at last arrives to the cortex. And then we become aware of it after it went to some processing because we perceive it as a one experience. I, I felt my fingers burned, but there, there, should, there, there is quite a complex processing done in the brain, in the cortex, for us to feel it that way. First of all, the brain has to determine the intensity of the pain and the unpleasant of, unpleasantness of it. And second, it has to determine the location in the body. These are two different parts of the, of the brain. They get processed there and they uh, being integrated together and then only we become aware of it. So this is actually the last thing that happens. However, when we become aware of it and the cortex becomes involved, at last we can do something about it. We can, let's say, down-regulate the, the pain voluntarily. Here we come to the conflict between uh, Mother Nature and us. To regulate the pain voluntarily, we need our prefrontal cortex very strong because it's a, it's a matter of attention. If I'll give more attention to the pain, if I'll start thinking, if I'll like, like catastrophize it, oh, I burnt my hands, I might die, it might be very gender, dangerous, I'll pay more attention to the pain and it will become bigger. But if I'll pay less attention to the pain, even if I distract myself doing something that, um, that needs attention, that requires attention, the pain will, the, like the pain will become less, less painful, less intense. Now, Mother Nature is so to it that it will be that pain will pull our attention very strongly. It takes a lot of, uh, let's say, you need to have a, you need to be a person that controls his attention very well, or a person that actually practiced controlling his attention to be able to uh, distract your attention from the pain. And we'll talk about it later. How do you practice that? So we talked about the down regulation from the subcortical areas, and we talked about the regulating, regulating the pain by the prefrontal. This is done willingly, voluntarily, and we'll talk later how. And now I want to, to show you the, the same principle in, a mo in something is, that is more emotional. Let's say we walk in the bush and we see a snake. Now, a snake is a very primal input. We are conditioned to be afraid of snakes. So when we see the snake, the, the input comes from our eyes to our subcortical area, and immediately our, our heart is activated. Is, we have a faster heart rate. Our uh, muscles are activated. We are ready to flee or fight, right? This is the flight or fight response. Only later, 
the input may arrive to our cortex, and then when, when, become, when we become aware of it, we, after this moment of panic, we may realize that this snake is actually not dangerous. And it is the cortex will send an inhi inhibiting message to the subcortical areas. Now, regarding emotion, part, part of feeling the emotion, what I said uh, in the beginning that when there is something that is painful emotionally, I actually feel my heart aching. It happens by this mechanism. It, the subcortical, subcortical areas send a, mes a message to the heart, let's say, that, that uh, cause it to contract. And we have, from the heart, we have a sensory neuron that goes to the cortex so in the cortex, we become aware of our heart contracting. Then we become aware of it. We can, we can uh, activate the prefrontal cortex to do something with it, with this pain. And we'll talk about it later. I hope it will be more clear. So prefrontal cortex is very important. We finished with him but it tends to desert us when we need it most. <laughs> Why? Because Mother Nature saw to it that when we are stressed, the prefrontal cortex go blank and the subcortical areas take charge. Now, it's, it's actually good for survival if you are in the woods and you encounter a bear. So no need to do complex, uh, complex you know, calculations now and think about the future. Now you have to run. So it's reasonable for the subcortical areas to take charge. But we are not in the woods. We are in the city. And the stress in our life may be uh, continuous. And especially continuous stress cause our prefrontal cortex to shut down. The prefrontal cortex, since it's the most, the newest part of the brain and the finest part, when the brain has a problem of energy or resources, the prefrontal cortex, it's the first one that it will give up on. So while we need the prefrontal cortex in times of stress, it is stress that makes the prefrontal cortex stop working. Now, how do we negate this, that? Because maybe it's good for Mother Nature, but it's not good for me as a person. When I have problems, I do want my prefrontal cortex to work. So we'll see in a minute. Another, another uh, process in which we lose prefrontal cortex tissue and function is when we age. We age both of the outside and in the inside because with age, we naturally lose brain tissue. Now we can do things for that too. And we'll see what can we do. 
there, there are also the brain diseases uh, of the degeneration uh, of brain tissue, like Alzheimer, like vascular brain disease. When we lose tissue, and we also have brain tissue, and we also have dementia, we, our cognitive uh, functions deteriorate. Now, we have, I wouldn't have said that if I was not about to tell you what can we do to negate it. <laughs> uh, the last thing by which we can uh, lose uh, prefrontal cortex function is injury. Now, this is a very Phineas gauge. It's a very famous character in psychology and neuroscience because he lived in the 19th century and he had a, an injury by which he lost his prefrontal cortex, but he kept on living. That was a miracle. I just want to tell you how it, affect, how it affected his life to stress again the importance of the prefrontal cortex. So before his accident, he was a successful businessman and he was managing his life very well and he was very liked by his uh, work colleagues and family and everything was okay. After the injury, when he recovered, he became a very different person. He was very rude and inconsiderate. Why? Because he didn't have the prefrontal cortex to inhibit his you know, primal impulses. And he couldn't actually manage his life. He wanted to work, but he couldn't, like, he couldn't make plans and sacrifice the short-term satisfactions for the long-term goals. So losing prefrontal uh, tissue is very bad for us. Usually we don't get this kind of injuries, so we, we are okay for that. Now we'll speak about the positive side. What do we do for enhancing our brain and especially the prefrontal cortex? So we have to speak, for that we have to speak about brain plasticity. The brain is actually, it doesn't come, we could think that the brain comes ready-made, like we are born with, with it ready, but it is not true. So when we are born, we already have a lot of neurons, actually all the neurons we need, but there are, no, there are not yet meaningful connections. It's only after we live in the environment, in the physical and social environment, even in our first year, that our brain starts to become like it, it's designed. It design, it's designed according to the environment. How, how does this happen? Only first, only neurons that are activated survive. So what do, what do I mean neurons that are activated? Neurons that are activated by, by the environment. 
if someone will 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 be born and live in darkness he won't develop the brain neurons that he need for seeing so we must have visual input to develop these neurons um for children there is at, at some point it was discovered that environmental enrichment is very important here we see mice these are young mice and we see them in a cage with a lot of toys so they have a lot of visual input and a lot of um uh, ways to move around and things like cognitive inputs thing to think about like solving all kind of things and things to touch this is very important to the youngs of any species because it's only the neurons that are um activated that will survive so uh, exposing children to as much things or babies both babies and children to as much as much things as possible is very important for the development of their brain like showing things showing th- things to baby talking to them holding them exposing them to different kind of people again only only neurons that are activated survive so it's very important oh, it was discovered this is what i wanted to say it was discovered in the in a study that infants their that their mothers showed them more things and talked to them more were more intelligent later on so it's very important especially in the beginning of life because the brain comes raw and we need to design it and we want it to be to have the most i mean to be able to respond to a lot of things and have a lot of capabilities mm-hmm. there is the thing of bilingualism you know some children have two parents that speak to to and it's very uh, it's very good for the brain it's very healthy so we see more thick like we see thicker cortex in the bilingual lingual people compared to monolingual people and why is that because we only have one system in the brain for language if this system has to host two languages it works more and if the brain works more it's good because it will create the mechanisms and it will become physically thicker and then we have more brain tissue so and this is the f- the first thing um about aging when we lose uh, when we lose brain tissue we lose brain tissue as we age but if we had more brain tissue to begin with we are in a better place even if we lose brain tissue that's okay we can afford it we won't develop symptoms of dementia 
or Alzheimer. So the things that are good for the brain postpone or prevent the um, symptoms of dementia. And bilingualism is one of them. Like learning a new language, or it can be even a new instrument, like playing on an instrument, is, can be very helpful for the brain. And no matter what, what age it is done, even if it's, it is done in older age, it still adds tissue to the brain. Now, aerobic exercise. I, we'll talk about other things that mental exercises that we can do with our brain that will increase its tissue and put us in a better place. But before that, exercise, we, aerobic exercise, we usually think about exercise as something that is important to the heart and lungs. Uh, but you have to remember that whatever is good for your heart is also good for your brain. Because you have the vascular, the same vascular system that you have in your heart, you also have in your brain. And especially your prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex is very responsive to aerobic exercise. After you do aerobic exercise, you'll be able to think better than before you did the exercise. You just not only feel better, like have better mood, you can actually, if I'll give you a test of controlling your attention, you'll do it better because the exercise activated your prefrontal cortex. Here, what we see in the picture, this, this is from a study that was done on children. And it shows that children that had better aerobic capacity also could read better and do math better because their prefrontal cortex was more activated. But it's true to any age. Uh, exercise, aerobic exercise is very important for the prefrontal cortex, very important for our mood and our high mental abilities. And why, why is the prefrontal cortex so, so responsive? The first reason is, as I said before, the, the brain tends to give up on the prefrontal cortex when it doesn't have enough resources. So when there isn't enough uh, blood there, not enough, I mean, the, not enough oxygen, the prefrontal cortex is less active. However, when we exercise and blood and oxygen like flood the brain, the prefrontal cortex is coming alive. It, it becomes more activated. Also, the prefrontal cortex is just near here in the frontal part of the brain. There, is, there are the motor areas. When we do aerobic exercise, they are very active and they activate also the prefrontal cortex. Now, you, you remember that I said before that stress is just when in times of stress, when I have problems with my life and I need the prefrontal to be active, prefrontal cortex, just then it becomes inactive because the brain doesn't have enough energy. But if I do aerobic exercise, it will negate this 
this uh, tendency of the prefrontal cortex to become, even if, if I do aerobic exercise and then I have stress, the stress won't make the prefrontal cortex go to sleep. It will remain active because of the exercise I've done before. So just that you know, the uh, World Health Organization have a recommend, the recommendation is for 30 minutes of aerobic exercise a day, almost every day. Yeah, it's, I, I don't do it myself, but I aspire to that. <laughs> Yes, like walking and running and cycling and swimming. Gardening, yes, but it has to be not like it has to be not light, not light. It has to be moderate. If you do mo like moderate exercise in gardening, yeah, it's good. Yeah. This was about a physical exercise, and let's, let's go back to the mental exercises. So we talked about bilingualism, which is kind of mental exercise for the brain, because it has to choose a language each, each time. There are also designated cognitive exercises for the brain. There are few uh, commercial companies that have such exercises on the internet. Here I gave one example of such Brain HQ, one example of such a company. I gave them because they have a lot of research. You know, a lot of companies can sell you a lot of things, but how would you, do, how would you know that it really works? They have a lot of examples of academic research in their website that shows that it really, when you do the exercises, your mental, your cognitive abilities really go up. And here you see here, this is a picture from a study where people did this kind of mental exercises that exercise our control of attention. And we see that this is a tissue, brain tissue that became thicker, like it was activated, it was activated, this is why it became thicker. And here the, the is frontal brain tissue that became thicker. So these are exactly the places we want our brain tissue to become thicker because if it's thicker we have more capability and then even if we even if we lose a brain tissue it's okay because we started from a better place and even if we naturally lose tissue we won't have the symptoms of dementia like the loss the loss of memory and or we'll have them less. The last example I'll give for a mental exercise is mindfulness and meditation. Now, mindfulness is very, is, is fashionable now, which is good. There are few places to learn mindfulness. Now, how mindfulness meditation helps and what do we see here in the picture? 
Um, so there were three groups in the study, and in, in yellow we see the results of mindfulness meditation. In red and green, these are two other kinds of meditation. It's mainly, I mean, it's called loving kindness. Mm -hmm. Those in red and green, they, they practiced like cooperating with others and being, uh, having empathy towards others. They didn't um, practice mindfulness. And wh wh where we have the colors, it, it's a brain tissue that became thicker. So we see that those who practiced mindfulness, her brain, their brain tissue became thicker in the frontal parts here too. This is actually the back part, but it mainly became thicker in the frontal parts. Those who practiced other, kind of, other kinds of meditation, like loving kindness and empathy and uh, understanding others, they, they, their brain also became thicker, which is good. It's not a bad, bad thing to practice, it's a good thing, but it's not the frontal cortex that became thicker, it's other parts of the cortex, the results of everyone who participated in the study. They, they took an average. They, they checked all the brains of, they checked it with MRI. They put people in the machine and f like uh, photographed their brain and they um, took the average thickness of their brain, like they checked them before and after and they saw that the frontal part is, um, becomes thicker for those who practice mindfulness meditation. Now, what is mindfulness meditation anyway? When you are mindful, the meaning of the word mindful, it means that you pay attention to what happens if it's in the environment or in your own body, like your respiration or your sensations from the body, you pay attention to them, but you have an attitude of objectivity towards, towards them. You, you look at them like a scientist, you are detached. You don't treat it because, like I, I practice Vipassana, which is mindfulness meditation, and when I do that, I feel the sensations from my body and I stay detached towards, I try to stay detached toward them. This, like perceiving the sensations from your body many times create an emotion because you feel maybe I feel my, my stomach tensed like before this presenta presentation, uh, but and it might create a circle because I'm tensed, my, my brain gives a, an order to my stomach, it tensed, I feel it and I become even more tensed because I feel myself tensed. So this is the regular circle that happens when we feel sensations from our body. But mindfulness meditation involves the prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex is more flexible. It can feel the, the tense stomach, but treat it as 
like it's just a natural phenomena, not something that belongs to me and has to affect me. I don't know if I'm clear. You, you have to experience it to understand what it is about, but it's very healthy to the brain. It develops, it's, it's, you know, we have our impulses. Our impulses come from the subcortical area, like, like uh, tensing my stomach mus muscle or having butterflies in my stomach. It's, it is the prefrontal cortex who can stay like, stay cool about it. Otherwise, I mean, if the prefrontal cortex is hijacked by the subcortical areas, my whole brain will become tense and that. And I told you, if I'm tense, the prefrontal cortex tends to stop working. So mindfulness meditation actually encourage, encourage the activity of our prefrontal cortex in times of stress. And yeah, this is an optimistic note, not to, <laughs> to finish in. And it's actually very accessible if you check this website. They have courses all the time. And there are also other schools if you check mindfulness meditation in the internet. And it is also, meditation is, uh, is positive. It does positive things anyway, even if it's not mindfulness. And mindfulness training does positive things even if it's not meditation. So there are a lot of things that you can try in this area. You've been listening to Julia Arditi from the University of Canterbury, speaking at the Canterbury Workers' Education Association's Scientific Snippet Series. 